This is Dr. David Proden, and I want to thank you as we begin another journey into school and community safety. If you're looking for industrial safety expert, Appalachian State University professor, Dr. Timothy Ludwig, please visit www.safety-doc.com. Again, that's Dr. Timothy Ludwig at www.safety-doc.com. Welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio host, and nationally recognized safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Join us each week as we discuss the best and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. Follow Dr. Perodin on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe. Hi, everybody. This is Dr. David Proden, and welcome to the Safety Doc Podcast. This is episode 100, so we've made a milestone. Thank you to everybody who follows the show. You can follow on YouTube, on Podbean. Also follow at SafetyPhD on Twitter. Thank you so much. 100 episodes. I'm excited. Today, I will be talking about force majeure is the ripcord of school safety. So force majeure. It's an interesting term I learned about maybe five, six years ago, and it's very significant when it comes to school safety, when it comes to decision-making, chaos theory. We're going to get into it today. Some anecdotes to start. I am returning to PBS Yes, PBS TV. I will be giving the national presentation on the state of school safety on July 3rd. So, yeah, right before July 4th, obviously, not sure how many people will be in the audience, but it is a Wednesday, and I don't think many people will be doing their traveling until later in the week. That will record in Madison, Wisconsin. Be very similar to the show that I did May 22nd, 2013, when I presented on school security and crisis preparedness. So the title of this specific episode, I guess, installment encore is School Safety in America, Rhetoric versus Reality. And it's actually a significant privilege to be asked back on public television. This will air across the nation. Uh, once you do a live presentation, the way that it works is it needs to then go through closed captioning and also through rating system before it can be re-released on PBS. And then it goes into syndication across all PBS stations. And PBS has also advanced their online streaming. So this uh, special will be very popular my 2013 episode was and still is the hallmark episode on PBS for a rhetoric-free, empirical presentation about school safety. I talked more about the history of school safety, and in this presentation, I'm going to identify things that have changed in the last six years and the new 
number one threat to school safety, which is going to be different than what everybody assumes that number one threat is going to be. So I'm looking forward to it. I have an eight page detailed outline already. I will go through, refine that, I will reorder it, and then I will start to make a PowerPoint to go along with it. I have 55 minutes to present. If I go longer than that, then it's difficult for PBS to put it into scheduled programming. So at 55 minutes, it works because they can get commercial time slots. And my initial presentation on May 22nd, 2013 was 78 minutes. Um, so this one will be a little more concise. I'm going to come out at a pretty rapid pace to cover a lot of very important information. I'm excited about it. So how that process works, um, I am at a podium and then the podium has multiple screens on it so I can get feedback from the booth as they're recording it. I will be able to observe my PowerPoint um, and I can also have additional information up in front of me, including a, a counter, a timer, so I know where I'm at. Um, what's interesting, too, is they're very specific uh, guidelines. Where you stand at the podium, um, that you don't look back at the big presentation screen. So that's, that's something you don't do. Um, and also afterwards, so the presentation will be 55 minutes, but then they shut the cameras off and you stay for an hour or two to answer questions for the, from the audience. And that's always enjoyable. So to be brought back for an encore presentation is a truly humbling experience. It's very difficult to be featured on PBS to start with. Um, I, I did the presentation following the Sandy Hook shooting in 2012. So had the response that countered much of the rhetoric that was going on in the nation about school safety, had 35 pages of references with me. That was a phenomenal presentation. Now, six years later, we'll be giving an update, but much more contemporary, not looking at like the history of school safety or trend lines, but more what's changed in the last six, year, six years, I should say, and getting into some of the deep theoretical bases for why this happens. For example, like simulated annealing, and talk about, again, what I perceive to be the largest threat to school safety. Um, and it's something that has ironically just rapidly um, appeared on the scene. So rapid that I didn't have time to even uh, really parse it out in my book, School of Air. So going to be very uh, intriguing, fascinating, fast paced, high energy presentation on July 3rd. Hey, if you're wanting to watch it, tune into your PBS station. If you're in Wisconsin, you will see it. Many other affiliates are also carrying it live. If not, it will then be syndicated later in fall, maybe August or September, and then it'll be across all PBS networks in the country. Again, once it's closed captioned, and once it is rated. So it's a real honor for me. It was a phenomenal first experience. Um, I consider it the best presentation of my life. Um, I'm very at ease presenting before an audience and before TV. There are no nerves whatsoever. I've just never had that. 
what do they say? A lot of people say that uh, public speaking is their number one fear. I, I don't have that. I've never had that. I always feel very confident when addressing an audience. So um, again, very much looking forward to this encore presentation with PBS. School Safety in America, Rhetoric versus Reality, July 3rd. Um, I had five yards, five cubic yards of mulch delivered. I had raked up all of the mulch from the beds around my various trees and landscaping and had dispatched it to the end of my property, which abuts parkland. So I spread it out uh, back there. And uh, per my calculations, uh, I thought it would be about five yards of mulch I would need. In reality, this, uh, this dump truck arrives, and immediately when it arrives, I'm thinking, that's a lot of mulch. Uh, that's too much. But they deliver the mulch, and uh, my whole driveway, thankfully it didn't get off on the sides, but I have a big driveway. And I go to town, uh, just, just crazy, and I'm using this shovel, um, kind of this medium-sized steel shovel to fill up my wheelbarrow. And the, the ironic part of that is the shovel I got from my neighbor who was a doctor and he would just put things at the end of his um, property that he didn't want anymore. And it could be things that were perfectly functional, like he would upgrade a lawnmower instead of trying to sell it or trade it. And he just put it there, like free or whatever. And I got some incredible things from him, <laughs> shelving and stuff like that. But this was one, like a virtually brand new, very nice metal, medium-sized shovel. Came in handy as I needed to move all of this mulch. A couple other big things here, some rebranding for the Safety Doc podcast. Yes, the uh, traditional square logo that you see will soon be replaced. Um, I am working on working with an artist on a new branding concept. Uh, we've agreed upon it and it won't probably show up in this podcast, but definitely in podcasts going forward. We're going to keep a little bit of a of a shout out to the sign image, um, which is currently in effect for the safety doc. But we're going to go a little bit more contemporary, um, a little more avatarish. So I'm excited about that. It's time, especially with the book coming out, to update. Um, things just look too um, I don't I don't know too too mechanical too organized. Um, and that served its purpose, but it's time to rebrand. So you're going to be seeing some new branding here from the Safety Doc Podcast. Also, on July 31st, if you are in Duluth, Minnesota, check out Wade Stadium. It seats 4,200 people, probably has a ticket for you. The Safety Doc here will be throwing out the first pitch with my youngest daughter at my side, um, she'll also be tossing the ball, um, but I'll be throwing out the first pitch. The Duluth Huskies have honored me as a school safety expert. I am retiring on June 10th, so just a couple days away. So yeah, I'm retiring. Um, they're honoring my career, honoring that I also went to nearby UW-Superior and just my contributions to school safety. 
So that night is going to be pretty special. Never got to do anything like this. So I'm going to throw the old Ricky Vaughn fastball down to the catcher as the opening pitch as the Duluth Huskies host the Lacrosse Loggers. It's a minor league baseball team. I love the stadium. It's built uh, from nine, turn of the century bricks. It was done as a CCC project. Just a beautiful, beautiful stadium um, from that 1930s, uh, 40s era. They did do some very tactful updating. Um, they put in artificial turf and a few other um, upgrades to it with lighting, but it is it really is what a stadium should feel like. Um, you know, the modern, the brand new stadiums, they kind of have the amusement park, you know, sensation to them and all of these huge replay boards and all of that. Um, it it kind of gets saturating, it gets over the top. But once you go back to Wade Stadium in Duluth, it anchors you to the core of what baseball is and it's very well maintained it's just a wonderful place if i lived in duluth i would go to as many home games as i could just a wonderful place and they have such a fun time they have a terrific energetic staff uh, working with the huskies have treated me like royalty i can't say enough about the duluth huskies organization and making this possible so yeah we'll be throwing out the first pitch and also celebrating the release of School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America, my book, which actually will be in stores a week later. So it's going to be a great time all around. Love that Duluth area. A shout out to the sponsors of the Safety Doc podcast. The 405 Media out of Los Angeles, California. The 405media.com. John Grant, and the League of Extraordinary Podcasters. You can listen to my show at 2 p.m. PST daily, Monday through Saturday, on the 405media.com. Also, check out the Clary Podcast. Check out Readily Random with Larry Roberts. So many excellent podcasts. It's basically a, a contemporary podcast radio station, a mix of talk, radio, sports, economics. It's the best. I've been with the 405 Media now for over two years and, you know, hitting 100 podcasts. Very honored, very humbled to be a part of the 405 Media. Thank you so much. You won't be disappointed if you check them out, the405media.com out of Los Angeles, California. Also, a thank you to Radio and Podcast, my friend Jim Mallard at radioandpodcast.com. So many terrific shows. Jim Mallard, host of The Mallard Report. I will also be on The Mallard Report in early August. And we'll be talking about the intricacies of school safety and kind of the levers that move the school safety, the $3 billion industrial complex. Jim has had tremendous guests, including James Fitzgerald, who broke the Unabomber case, and also Roger Stone. Uh, Jim Mallard, Radio and Podcast. Also, check out Radio and Podcast, again, in the format of a traditional kind of radio station where you're always having new podcasts presented to you once you find Radio Podcast and tune into it. So please check out RadioandPodcast.com. 
Today's episode, what is force majeure? So again, a term I didn't know about until maybe five, six years ago. Um, had no idea what does force majeure mean, you know? Um, if I saw it on a menu at a restaurant, I'm thinking I'm probably ordering that because that's au jus sauce that is going with my French dip. But no, force majeure. I started to do contracts um, when I was working with a few other people to put together some conferences, some very large conferences. You know, like 500 people attended the um, the Great Lakes Behavior uh, Summit, which I was part of putting on. And we needed to include a clause, which was the force majeure clause. So in Wisconsin, when you run a conference, you run the risk of adverse weather. And that's kind of almost year-round at this point. Um, so if you run a conference in March and it's a 20-inch blizzard and people can't attend the conference, then the force majeure is in place. So basically, let's take a look at the word force majeure. It's French for superior force, meaning something that's really out of your control. So force majeure refers to a clause that is included in contracts to remove liability for natural and unavoidable catastrophes that interrupt the expected course of events and restrict participants from fulfilling obligations. So meaning force majeure, if, if there was a, a massive blizzard and people weren't able to attend the conference, we did not need to refund their registration fees. I think we also had some kind of down payment with the location, but then some force majeure clause also on like food and the, the rooms that we had rented out for the presentation. So, but it's one of these things where if something completely kind of unexpected happens, it's out of your control, it gives you a protection, force majeure. This is very important when we think about school safety. We'll talk about that later. It might become evident as we go through this presentation. It's a term that I'm going to bring up in my next book about school safety. Um, I didn't bring it up in the first book because one, I already was introducing a lot of new terms to people um, in the education industry, such as transference dynamics, simulated annealing. These are terms that people who are teachers, principals are typically not familiar with. So I didn't want to add another term into that. And I kind of described what force majeure was without using the term, but it'll come forward in my second book. So the problem also with force majeure, I I was very cautious of not introducing it in the first book because it can almost become an excuse of, well, you know, this happened, it was beyond our control, throw up our hands and oh well. And I don't want people to do that. So force majeure is not a, a white flag, I give up and this just happened to me and whatever. Um, but it, it is clearly indicating some event has happened to cause a serious disruption to your torus, T-U-R-U-S. That's your similarity, self-similarity every day, kind of being similar to the next, um, predictable. And when force majeure happens, it kind of moves you out of that torus and into something that's either 
a little bit outside of the Taurus in this gray zone or further outside of the Taurus into chaos. So um, let me talk about some examples about force majeure. So this will make it more clear, more precise for you when I embed it in a context. A must read for parents, teachers, and taxpayers. Dr. David Perodin has written the most honest book about the $3 billion school safety industrial complex. Attorney James Sibley proclaims, a brave demonstration of speaking truth to power. School of Errors rips the lid off the billion dollar school safety industry. Using real world examples of successful responses in desperate situations, David contrasts the expensive window dressings pitched to panic parents with the inexpensive and effective approaches proven to actually work. Read this book before you let your school waste another precious dollar on meaningless safety theater. Buy the international bestseller, School of Errors, Rethinking School Safety in America, now at Barnes & Noble or Amazon. So, um, the events of 9-11, okay, 9-11-2001, that was a force majeure event. Now, here's the part of it that was force majeure. So, one, it hadn't happened in our, in our lifetimes. So, it's not like anybody had expected planes to fly into high-rises, skyscrapers in New York City, and then also subsequently destroy them. The only time that a skyscraper in New York had been struck was in the 40s by a military plane, a fighter that was lost in the fog. Um, so... But let's say that um, you were traveling to give a presentation, like with your company, and you needed to give a presentation uh, on the 13th of September 2001. Well, air travel had been suspended. So the fact of 9-11 happening was a force majeure act, which then suspended travel and would have enforced that force majeure clause of saying you weren't able then to, to travel to your destination and other people weren't able to travel. All of their plans were disrupted. They couldn't get there. It was something that was unforeseen that all of these ripple consequences would happen. But because of that, you're not responsible for not giving that presentation. Yeah, I mean, obviously there's some cost incurred or some cost lost, but those type of things typically then are absorbed by the facilities and stuff like that. But if it was um, dependent, you know, on some contract that you have that you had to present on the 13th and had to be there and you couldn't because obviously there wasn't any airline um, available to you, that's force majeure. You can't be penalized for that. Now, typically, these are things you want to have in contracts. You want to have in, in agreements. Um, I... I, I think it's an okay thing to mention in school settings also that if something, you know, you're, you will practice for many different scenarios to happen in school of high probability, higher probability, such as tornado, such as fires, such as intruder or lockdown. Um, but if it is something you know, like a, a chemical leak that happens that then everybody has to stay inside because a certain area of 
a region is contaminated, it's not safe to go outside, um, that would be force majeure. You know, again, something like a 9-11 happening might be force majeure. Um, a blackout could be force majeure. So I think it's important to let parents know, like there's going to be some things, we can't prepare for everything, right? We can't do that. We can't be a mile wide and an inch deep in school safety. So we're going to prepare for the most probable things. And we're going to equip ourselves with the situational awareness skills and the ability to understand that systems will develop and how we'll interface with those systems, how we'll work the problem like Apollo 13. We'll be able to do all of those things, okay? But some of the things that could happen um, are things that we will not have drilled for, all right? So again, if a plane crashes into your school or on your school campus or something like that, or if there's a high-speed chase that starts 100 miles away and it ends up by you know, somebody crashing into your school building, that is something that you would not anticipate. That would be a force majeure event. So let me give a couple others, all right? An attack by flying saucers. Unlikely, right? But yeah, an attack by flying saucers would be a force majeure majeure event. So uh, remember it was the Richter scale, at least when I was growing up for hurricane, not for hurricanes, for earthquakes, the Richter scales. So the higher the number, like a 10.0, that would be pretty severe. That would be an intense uh, earthquake. Now it's modified into the Mercalli um, scale, and that measures earthquake intensity. So it, from a 1 to a 12. So 1 is being not felt. A 12 is being damaged nearly total. Let's say that all of a sudden in the Midwest, we had an earthquake of a 15.0 magnitude per this Mercalli scale. That would be considered a force majeure. Even if buildings collapsed and people died, there would not be a means for litigation because building codes would have been met. Nobody would have anticipated that there would be an earthquake of that magnitude. So, you know, it's kind of like, too, when, when you create cars. There's always a trade-off um, with the safety measures that are put into cars, airbags, uh, roll bars, different crumple zones on frames. But there is a risk, obviously, of driving 70 miles, on in, 70 miles per hour on an interstate and so there's a trade-off um, with that. And there's always a trade-off with all of these building codes. Like it, there will be a certain part where, I mean, if you were to build a, a building, a skyscraper, which could withstand a 15.0 earthquake on the Mercalli scale, which would be you know, largely unheard of in our time, um, the cost to do that might be prohibitive. Um, so there, there does get to be this point where it's like up to like, you always hear like the 50 year storm or the 100 year storm or the 150 year storm or event or whatever. So there are building codes which hold to those thresholds. But if something happens beyond that threshold is so exceptional, there isn't a liability if that structure does fail. Also, a nuclear bomb detonation in a city that would be force majeure. Um, unlikely, but you know it could happen. Um, magnetic poles shifting. So all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're getting out your compass and south is north and north is south. 
something like that would be force majeure. It would mess with all of the airlines, all of the transportation systems, significant delays, if not cancellations for weeks, getting all of that coordinated, messing up with GPS systems and vehicles and so forth. Um, here's another one, you know, a solar flare blast. Um, I believe this happened back in the 1800s, but we didn't have much for electronics or electricity back then. I think it was telegraph lines that got cooked by a solar flare blast. Um, but if something like that happened, we could have significant disruption um, all across the world. So communications and being able to use um, automobiles, uh, things like buildings and things like that, you know, that would be very limited for example, the electricity that would be available. So that'd be a force majeure event. It very rare. We don't know what to anticipate from it, but if it happened, it could have significant consequences. Here's one that's fascinating because um, I learned about this just, just recently also. And this is one of the things when you write a book, there is always new information that comes forward after the book has been published. <laughs> so things you're like, boy, if I would have only known that, I would have included it in chapter X or chapter Z. And um, But that's what you do. You have to draw a line in the sand and you publish. And then if any new information comes out or you become informed, you can either put that in a journal articles, which I've done. I have, to, I have a journal article accepted by Kappen where I talk about the perilous practice of exempting students with disabilities from school safety drills. That will be in the October edition of CAP and I was notified that the article was accepted. So the Kessler syndrome, this was proposed by NASA scientist Donald J. Kessler in 1978. It's a scenario in which the density of objects in low earth orbit are high enough that collisions between objects could cause a cascade in which each collision generates space debris that increases the likelihood of further collisions. So basically it'd be like one satellite collides into another, creates a lot of debris, that debris is traveling around and hits other satellites and then damages them and maybe breaks off more debris and then you have this greater debris field and it just kind of all of a sudden consumes all of the satellites. So the satellites actually in a low earth orbit, orbit that's not a very big area. So, and we have a lot of satellites up in that area from all different countries. And if one of those were to malfunction or a couple of those, we could have something of this nature of this Kessler syndrome, and it could wipe out telecommunications, phone, you know, communications, GPS throughout the world. And it would take time then to reestablish that. We'd have to go into a different orbit. And by even getting into that different orbit, you'd have to clear this contaminated orbit which would probably be permanently contaminated with all of these different um, projectiles. So it's kind of a scary thing. And the Kessler syndrome is something that's becoming more and more talked about because countries are launching smaller and smaller satellites into space. This used to be very regulated. There would be approval. They would track the satellite and know exactly where it was um, relative to other satellites. But now there are some countries and some companies which are kind of going rogue and just launching satellites on their own and not going through this registry process. 
And a problem with this too is some of the satellites now are the size of like a textbook. So they're very difficult, if not impossible, to track. Um, so again, if you have a big satellite, you know what we can what we think of as a satellite, you know, maybe being six, ten feet or bigger and, and putting out the big solar panels and stuff like that. You can track that. Something that's the size of a textbook, not so much. But it can do tremendous damage if it collides in with another satellite, breaks off pieces. Now you have that debris flying around. But that would be a force majeure situation. And I think we need to, again, when we think about safety, we can't be linear in thinking about safety. Because if something like this happened, it's never happened before. We don't know what the effects would be all of a sudden if the telecommunication system went down. And also, you know, if TV basically went down, um, except, you know, through the, through the airwaves, um, this, this would really force people into a brand new paradigm, a new way of processing, a new way of, of thinking, because these, you know, like you, your cell phone communications and stuff like that, um, that wouldn't be available you know, possibly for months or years. So yeah, the Kessler syndrome. So again, talking, we have to prepare for these nonlinear events. And how you do that is, you know, systems will develop, um, stay calm, and, you know, perception of your environment, what is happening, understanding your Taurus. This is changing your Taurus, right? If the Kessler syndrome happens and wipes out all of the satellites, and we don't have satellite communication, we lose the, the use of our smartphones and iPhones and all of that. Um, you know, that the internet is significantly slowed, if not, you know, almost back to, to modem days, um, that we we run into this situation of how are we gonna how are we gonna handle this because we're gonna be out of our Taurus. We talk about this like 5G network right now, super fast and all that. Could you imagine being reverted back to the dial-up? Um I mean, I went through that era. So where to download, you know, just one picture might take 20 minutes. <laughs> so it could be something of that nature, the Kessler syndrome, but we can teach students, we can teach people to interact with that, to negotiate that, to embrace that kind of state of chaos. And it be, it'll become their new Taurus. This is gonna become their new normal for us that number of years before it's restored. This is where talking ahead of time to people about things like this um, is a primer because then if it happens, they're like, well, okay, this is what I'm going to expect. And also, I mean, we function very efficiently as a society pre-cell phone. Um, so we would just have to revert and adapt back to some of those conditions. It wouldn't put us in a primitive state, although it would take away some of the things that we've just become accustomed to today, such as cellular communication, being able to get out your phone to check baseball and football scores and quickly to research something. It's not going to quite be that way if we have a force majeure act of the Kessler syndrome. So, um, yeah, this is, this is absolutely amazing. And if we think of this as a personal level, I mean, if you, let's say you have your family and a family member has a brain aneurysm, and there was no pre-indication that that could happen um, 
then you have to process that. That is kind of a force majeure in that person's life. Maybe then suddenly they are, um, because of this unforeseen act, they're no longer able to work or care for themselves. So then how do you adjust to this act of force majeure? In that case, the force majeure is not necessarily returning to a state of similarity. It might be very dissimilar for this person as they recover or don't recover. Um, But maybe it is uh, that they have some kind of aneurysm and they're young and they make a recovery. They learn to walk um, again. They learn speech again, so they return to that self-similarity. But the whole point of of this discussion is understanding force majeure. And we'll go back to that original definition of it meaning a superior force. And it's also something that it's has, it's very infrequent. It probably hasn't happened even before in our lifetime. Thank you for tuning in to the safety doc podcast with the nation's leading safety expert, Dr. David Perodin. Author, radio show host, university instructor, researcher, expert witness, and consultant. Powerful testimonials. Dr. Perodin has a strong reputation as the go-to safety consultant, and he was still able to exceed our expectations. When we went looking for an expert in the field of crisis preparedness and prevention, David was the single person we pursued. Not easy stepping into the touchier subjects of life, but Dr. David pulls it off. Take a listen. Now, back to Dr. David Perodin and the Safety Doc Podcast. So, do not apologize for an act of force majeure. So, if um, you know there is a solar flare that you know wipes out communication systems, there's no need for you to apologize that you couldn't do your presentation. This is force majeure. Or again, if you can't make it because there is an unforeseen weather event that um, is uh, knocks out air travel and it cancels flights and, and you try to do simulated kneeling to see, can I do a flight here to here to here to get to my destination or buses or whatever travel. And it still doesn't work out because of this, this major event, which is like, hasn't been observed ever or like for 50 years or something that's force majeure. You don't have to apologize and you should not apologize for that. So, um, also force majeure, like I said, it's just not an, ex- it's not an excuse. And that's why I wanted to keep it out of the first book. It would have been too easy for people to say an intruder in our school, which is also very unlikely, but an intruder in our school is an act. It's a, it's force majeure. Um, and you know, that we, we kind of become, um, at, it, it is such a significant force that we, we become victimized by it. Um, no, you still have options. You still assess your situations, um, embrace that you're moving into chaos and, and look for your heuristics and your options. So it's not an excuse to just throw up a white flag and say, well, this happened and there's nothing I can do about it. No, there's always some 
response that you can have to a f- act of force majeure. So, and again, it really kicks you into simulated annealing, meaning that if it wipes out, um, you know, let's take again that it's it's a major snowfall. Um, it might the simulated annealing might be that you're going to have to take a very roundabout way to get where you're going. This actually here, here's an example that happened to me. I work for a school district that had a significant flooding event, a force majeure flooding event, something that had not happened ever in this district. The river was so high it went right over the bridge. It was it flooded up out a significant part of the community. Uh, those homes later had to be raised. But for me then to get to work, I needed to drive an extra hour and a half in a loop around just to get to work. So that was a force majeure event, and it closed down a lot of things in the community. Um, it, it disabled a lot of the utilities. Um, even with the water wells, several of them were taken offline. So um, people had to be very careful with the amount of water that they were using. But that was a force majeure situation. Um, and also force majeure out of that, uh, FEMA came in and took some of our school buildings and said these are now you know, FEMA sites when it was the high school. And we had a very limited time to get our personal belongings out of those sites, literally a couple hours, and then they became FEMA locations for people for um, not only uh, uh, shelter, but for processing um, what they had lost and to get back on their feet. That was a very fascinating experience for me. I remember being given a specific identification badge by FEMA so I could get back in and out of the building. But at that point, it was a FEMA-governed building. Um, so I wasn't doing any work there. I mean, I could have a limited access while there were people there. From And FEMA was on site 100% of the time for about um, 10 days. And they had armed guards at every entrance. The reason they do that is because people become very desperate during acts of force majeure. Um, So, you know, you don't want anybody coming very angry um, or distraught with a weapon into these sites. And also, these sites then, people are bringing their personal belongings to these sites and putting them in gymnasiums and whatever, so they need protection that's provided through that, that, those FEMA guard systems. So, um, but wow, that was that was really a phenomenal experience for me. So let's talk um, about my argument is once we have a force majeure act. So this is one of my arguments. Um, Cajun Navy relief back with hurricanes, Irma and Harvey. Those are really you know like force majeure acts, the amount of sustained rain and flooding, something we hadn't seen since Katrina, and we hadn't seen that in Florida, we hadn't seen that in Houston. Yes, there had been hurricanes, there had been flooding, but this was very long and sustained. So we had this level of flooding that was very atypical, wasn't anything that people had anticipated. So it became a force majeure event. Now, Because of that, I think we need FEMA and the federal government in general, 
you know, either through FEMA or just through federal government declaration to say, this is a force majeure event. Here is the geographic area that is impacted. And now, once we declare this a force majeure event, we will also then provide access for nonprofit civilian rescue forces, such as Cajun Navy Relief or Triton Navy or Triton Relief Group, for, for example, Cajun Navy Relief or Triton Relief Group to come in and to assist in the rescue of people who are in flooded out areas. Or we know that our local resources, like the fire department that has one boat, isn't able to handle this. We need to allow our nonprofit organizations, such as Triton Relief Group, in to help with the rescue. But what happens, we don't have this declaration of a force majeure, which I believe should happen. And it should also then say if you are a nonprofit organization, such as a Triton Relief Group, a Cajun Navy Relief, that then you have access and cooperation through FEMA and through government agencies to participate in these rescues. And these rescues are after, they're usually before or after the event. There are the rainfalls that cause the flooding. The flooding, as the waters start to rise, Cajun Navy, Triton Relief can come in and get people out. Or what happens is the event happens, a significant rainfall, and there is massive flooding, and then they have to go in and try to rescue people from that massive flooding. But if you declare at a government level a force majeure event, there should be underlying bullet points with that saying, these rescue forces then are immune from liability, okay, as long as they're acting within these 20 days that this force majeure is in place. They will have cooperation from FEMA as far as obtaining, like, you know, fuel for their vehicles, um, clearing roadways to get their resources, their assets to certain locations. That should happen. It did happen for Harvey and Irma in 2017. Um, it did not happen for Florence in 2018. So Hurricane Florence. So this is an opportunity for a, I guess, a paradigm shift at the government level. And I, if I was the head of FEMA, here's what I would do. I would declare um, a force majeure event. I would put that in as a clause saying we have a force majeure event. And during this event, then the nonprofit organizations, we will interface with those at a FEMA level. We will become brokers of services, meaning we will identify these different assets that we have. And some of them might be nonprofit that we, I mean, we're not compensating. We're not providing a liability for them, um, liability coverage, but we will help allocate where these resources go. Like we'll give them warehouse space. We'll help give them transportation, clear some of the roadways, things like that. I think that would be incredible for FEMA to do. Um, I'm not seeing it so much in 2019 as I saw in 2017 when FEMA was much more co cooperative with that kind of force majeure type response. But I would make it formal. I would say, if we have a force majeure event as declared by the federal government, this specific area for this number of days, uh, 50... Um, I don't know, 1C or whatever it is, but the nonprofit organizations such as Cajun Navy Relief, Triton Relief Group, 
Um, we welcome them in. We will interface with the resources to help rescue people. And then we are not going to hold them liable if something happens that results in an injury or a fatality or damage to property. It's almost kind of like a martial law in a way. But I think we it, we just have to have this. We have to have these civilian rescue forces, which they are there. They exist. But um, I think the success of them during the force majeure events, which were the flooding occurrences after Hurricanes Harvey and Irma, um, the force majeure was kind of in place. It was kind of recognized by FEMA. They did embrace with Cajun Navy relief. But then with um, Hurricane Florence in 2018, they didn't do that as much. So just putting it out there, I think force majeure clause should be something that FEMA and the federal government adapt. Not only for that, but like for you know wildfires and there's going to be other situations. We have amazing civilian rescue forces in this country. Forces that will develop. Systems that will develop if you let them and you don't interfere with them. The 500,000 people rescued in nine hours from lower Manhattan on 9-11-2001. That was a force majeure event. And that rescue force, the system developed and the rescue happened and then it dissolved. And that's similar to what would happen in the what I'm describing. So um, applying force majeure to school crisis situations. So a few things here we have to acknowledge, okay, that this crisis situation is occurring. So whether it be any of those scenarios that, that I've indicated, um, or it could be, you know, also a school intruder event, the likelihood of a school uh, shooting at any school in America is once um, every 13,000 years at any specific school building. Um, so in Wisconsin, for example, where I'm at, we have 421 districts and I think over 2,200 buildings, K-12 public school. Um, so again, the, the risk of that is very low, um, I mean, it's very sentinel, very significant when it happens, but it's more likely to be struck by lightning than to perish in a school shooting. Um, so we talk about applying force majeure to school crisis situations. And I, again, it's telling parents, it's telling staff up front, if something so significant happens, a boiler explodes, um, or there's a cl uh, infrastructure collapse of a of the building, or somebody you know collides into a building and causes a a fire or something like that. I mean, just something like we, that's out of our playbook, that's out of our typical tornado drill, fire drill, intruder drill. Um, and if something happens in the community, you know, you, sometimes this this happens where a chemical you know, factory starts on fire or something like that. It might be two, three miles from a school, but then the cloud is carried in that direction. Just imagine the Notre Dame uh, Cathedral fire. I mean, had that been um, during a school day in that smoke, which is laden with 500,000 pounds of lead, is moving into an area where schools are, you know, what would you do? I mean, as it, it, it starts to cool and, and that lead dust comes down, are you going to, 
you know, get students out and try to transport them home? Are you going to keep them in school for a certain amount of time? What are you going to do? So, um, but applying force majeure, I think basically you're telling schools if you, if you do that, say we're going to have force majeure events. So as an administrator and also as your insurance carrier, so you're going to have force majeure events, you're going to have to use your discretion because these are things you're never going to prepare for. I mean, Notre Dame had been around 800 plus years before the attic and the, um, the roofing made of lead um, was consumed by fire. So it was amazing, you know, an amazing event that nobody had a benchmark to. Never, you know, it happened before. So what do you do? You have to allow people to use their discretion during force majeure, and you have to allow them to use it without fear of being reprimanded or suffering negative consequences. Evaluate the situation, make the best determination, the best decision that you can make with the information that you have available to you, and then go ahead and act. And there should be, again, some immu immunity that is extended to people who are exercising decision-making under a force majeure situation. So let me just kind of recap on, on the main point here. So again, force majeure is a superior force. It's, it's an event which is very, very unlikely to happen. You know, an eruption at Yellowstone, um, a sustained, you know, back-to-back -back, um, level five hurricanes hitting New York that might topple a building or something like that. It's things that, you know, we haven't experienced. Um, they're not within the tolerances of building codes. Um, you know, if, if we had a, a significant earthquake, you know, a 10.0, a 12.0, and it went on for any length of time in the Nevada area, of course it would jeopardize like the Hoover Dam. And what would that mean for force majeure of um, different communities not being able to have the allocations of water that they were guaranteed um, through the creation of the Hoover Dam? So, you'd, I mean, these are all things that you'd have to deal with. You'd have to work the problem, that old Apollo 13 saying of working the problem. So... As I reflect on 100 episodes of the Safety Doc podcast, um, a few stick out to me. The podcast I did with David Hyde it was a blind man, and it was early. It was, I believe, podcast 15. It was my first off-site, or I think it was my second off-site podcast, but I had the camera set up, and, you know, um, it was early in the show, kind of still feeling out the direction, the style of the pod, of the Safety Doc podcast. A very phenomenal episode. Probably the, the start of when the show really um, was recognized as bringing empirical uh, value to people and interesting, fascinating stories. Go back and check out that episode. The work that I did with Hector Solis, especially very proud of the research, the effort, the collaboration, the networking we did to produce a podcast on um, sexual offender. Back at that time, I think we call it predator, but we've updated it to offender. Because when you, when you ask a child about predator, um, they're always thinking about somebody very nasty, very scary. But when reality, um, 
is is overlaid onto this, you know, the sexual offender is often someone that the child knows. It's someone they're comfortable with, could be a relative. So it's not someone they're identifying with, with that predator term. But we did extensive work into putting together a presentation that distilled, I believe, eight questions that could be asked of a child to help um, understand if that child might actually be the recipient of grooming behavior and then appropriate responses for that. Very proud of that as a public service show that we did. Very entertaining show with Justin Dooley. We brought out uh, different items in that show, displayed them. Again, this show is always in video. It's on YouTube as well as on audio, Apple Podcasts, or whatever that's going to be now that iTunes has shut down but um, or is reconfigured and on Podbean. But uh, different items for survival in winter if your car, you know, went off the road or didn't start and you're stranded somewhere. That was a fascinating, fun episode. TJ Martinell, another wonderful episode talking about the value of rituals. Having Aaron Clarion talking about um, economics uh, and so many um, powerful guests. James Sibley coming on, attorney James Sibley. We talked about uh, special education and exempting students from safety drills. And because of that podcast with James Sibley, I was contacted just recently by a retired law enforcement officer that said, hey, I heard that podcast where you mentioned students with disabilities being exempted from intruder drills because of potential drill trauma or a very um, uh, hyper reaction, which might agitate the student, put them in in, in a very dysregulated state for a long amount of time. He said, I have a son with autism, and I go to school districts around the country, and I do training specific to how responders can better interface with students with autism in schools and students with disabilities. And I said, that's amazing. Like, I had no idea that anybody was doing that. So he is helping me, actually, with a portion of the PBS presentation. I'm going to reference some of his work um, of saying, you know, this is a, this is a good thing, right? That we have people like him out there um, doing this and helping these drills have a purpose, having learning objectives that the responders will learn how to interact with students with disabilities, students with autism. That's all because of this podcast. I encourage you to subscribe. Please subscribe on YouTube um, or on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, but um, tell your friends about it. I mean, we've made 100 episodes I think if you listen, I know, I, I not think, I believe if you listen, you're always going to gain some new information. There's going to be something that will resonate with you and say, yeah, I, I, there's a part of my life, part of my past experiences, part of my current experiences. This, this means something to me. This is going to help me reframe, rethink. Um, and, and there are so many episodes which are just going to give you pieces of knowledge, pieces of ways to analyze things that you haven't done before, you know, in in, in such a way. Thank you so much for listening to this episode 100. And keep listening so much more. We will be discussing School of Airs, Rethinking School Safety in America. It's coming out 
Soon you can pre-order now on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart. Go for it. Thank you so much, everybody. This has been the Safety Doc Podcast with author, radio show host, and leading safety expert, Dr. David Peroni. Remember to check back each week for the latest, best, and most bizarre practices in safety preparation and crisis response. You can find Dr. Peroni on Twitter at SafetyPhD. And remember, the truth will keep you safe.